0: Hi there, I'm Travis, and this is the Why Is That Podcast. A reporting a, uh, house fire 87 Street Welcome back to the Why Is That Podcast. In today's world, it is often fairly easy to take certain things for granted. This is often the case with protective services. Logically, we all know that if we have difficulty, we can call the emergency number, and some public servant will be dispatched to assist us. When I was in high school, one of my best friend's houses burned down. The local fire department responded to fight the blaze, and within a matter of hours, the fire was not only under control, but fully extinguished. The fire department that responded to this fire was a modern volunteer fire department, but those volunteers were not amateurs. Instead, they were professionally trained and even got paid to respond to that fire. The volunteer portion came in that they were not regular employees hired by the city but instead members of the community at large who volunteered their spare time to protect their neighbors. This status of volunteer firefighter is a relatively recent phenomenon, generally dated to the past 300 years, but today in the United States it is estimated that a full 69% of firefighters are volunteers rather than the professional ones we, when we imagine a firefighter. So the question that has inspired today's episode is how did firefighting develop over the course of human history, and why is it that the volunteer firefighter has become the standard in fire protection? This is one of my favorite lines from the movie Moana. It is sung by the demigod Maui who was voiced by Dwayne the Rock Johnson in the song You're Welcome, written by the great Lin-Manuel Miranda. The line hints at one of Maui's greatest mythological accomplishments. I'm going to share a quote from an encyclopedia of New Zealand with the heading of Stealing Fire. It provides a summary of the Maori myth that saw Maui steal the secrets of fire so that mankind could harness it. Here's the story. To steal fire from his ancestress, Mahuka Maui slipped out into the night and extinguished all the cooking fires. In the morning he demanded cooked food, but when his mother ordered the slaves to go to Mohuka to beg her to give fire to the world again, they were too frightened to go. Wily Maui thereupon volunteered to undertake the task and was welcomed by the ancient as her grandson. She drew out one of her fingernails and fire gushed forth. This flame she handed to her young descendant who, however, did not go far before putting it out and returning for more. This mahuka supplied from a second fingernail, and the performance was then repeated until all the fingernails and all but one of her toenails had been used. The old lady, finally becoming suspicious, dashed the last nail to the ground, setting fire to everything. Maui fled from the blaze, taking refuge as a hawk, But even so, he might have perished had he not invoked the aid of his ancestors, including the Thunder God, who supplied so much water that Mahuka herself almost perished in her turn. Before all was lost, Mahuka did succeed in saving a few sparks, which he threw into such trees as the Kakamuka, whose wood is still used for firing. Fire has allowed us to warm our homes so that we are able to survive the harsh winter. It has allowed us to cook our meat, which proved to be essential to early human brain development. It allowed us to craft more sophisticated tools and weapons, which allowed our capacity to grow and defend to expand. And so much more that I could do an entire podcast series about how fire made humans into what we are today. With all of those benefits, fire is still one of the most dangerous elements in the world and is able to take away everything and more that it gave to us. This dichotomy between outstanding benefits and fearsome drawbacks inspired each of our early ancestors to create their own mythological stories for how humans wrested control of fire away from the gods or from a single god. Maui's story is just one of many. These Orastrians held fire to be their most important religious symbol and outside observers even appeared to worship fire. In Hinduism, the Vedas describes the five elements of the universe as earth, water, wind, void or space and of course, fire. Perhaps the most famous of all these early civilization tools to the western public is that of Prometheus. In ancient Greek myth, Prometheus was a titan who stole the power of fire for humanity. This act enabled both progress and civilization in human culture for the first time. Prometheus was punished for this theft by being tied to a rock where his liver was eaten by an eagle before it would regenerate overnight and he would be subjected to the torture all over again the next day. The agony earned him a place as a culture hero for the Greeks, who praised him for his sacrifice. But the anger of the gods at humans having access to fire explained why sometimes the flames would rage out of control and burn the house to the ground. This fixation on fire in each civilization's separate world religions helps to explain just how important fire was to early human existence while also helping to explain just how dangerous it was it seems only natural that those civilizations would have attempted to find ways to protect themselves from fire, such as building their houses near sources of water, so that if a flame ever visited them at home, they could rush to the lake, river, or ocean to attempt to douse the fire. However, we unfortunately have very little information about early attempts at fighting fire. This is partially due to the usual problem of lack of written records before a certain point in time, but also because the items that we believe would have been used for early firefighting had multiple uses or were organic material so that they would have disintegrated over the millennia. For instance, if you look at a modern-day fire axe, it really just looks like a standard axe and only has the association of fire axe because of the one who is carrying it. Same scenario is true for a bucket, which would have been used to scoop water and dump on the flames. We do have evidence that indicates that the pump-action hose was invented at least 2,400 years ago. I do use the word invent a little loosely as that 2400 year old hose was made from ox intestines attached to an ox bladder. The technique was to fill the large bladder with water and then compress the bladder which forced the water out of the intestines to spray wherever it was aimed. This created a very stretchy hose but not a very durable one. That non-durable nature also means that the ancient ox intestines do not survive in historical dig sites, so we cannot know how common these intestine hoses truly were. Pretty ingenious, though, if you ask me. I mean, who has never peed on a bonfire to help put out the ashes? These early efforts to fight fires, though, do not ever appear to be anything more than able-bodied amateurs who would rush to help their immediate neighbor when someone eventually started yelling fire and never formed any type of professional fire resistance squad or ever held meetings to discuss best practices. The first verified professional fire brigade first appears in the historic record with the Roman statesman Marcus Licinius Crassus. Crassus was the wealthiest member of the first triumvirate and was the financial patron of Julius Caesar. Before all that end-of-the-republic business, Crassus had to make that money that helped turn him into one of the most powerful men in Rome. Crassus was not exactly the most moral man in the world, and this helped turn him into one of the wealthiest men in the history of the world by any measurement. One of the ways that he managed that was by founding the first professional fire brigade. Crassus founded his fire brigade somewhere around the year 90 BCE in order to take advantage of the fact that the city of Rome did not have a fire department of her own. He hired or owned somewhere around 500 men to work as his personal firefighters. It was not a sense of civic pride that drove Crassus to found this revolutionary task force, and it was instead a way to make huge amounts of money or acquire large tracts of land. The firefighters would rush to any fire in the city of Rome once the alarms were raised and stop outside waiting for the order from Crassus to put out the fire. Crassus would arrive and sally up to the owner of the burning building and say, Hey, looks like your house is on fire. How much will you pay me to put it out? If an agreed-upon price could not be reached, Crassus and his men would just watch the building burn to the ground, at which point he would turn back to the owner of the burned-out lot and say, hey, I'll give you five bucks for your land. Obviously, it was not actually five dollars, but it was a very low offer that was far below market value. Many paid for the services of Crassus or took him up on the offer to buy the property after the fact. After all, some money or some of your possessions not being destroyed is well worth a significant amount of money, even if it is not the most ethical money-making scheme on the part of Crassus. Over 100 years after Crassus, in the year 60 CE, the Emperor Nero finally decided to act on the basic idea of Crassus to create a publicly funded group called the Vigilis Urbani, or Watchmen of the City. These watchmen served as both the firefighters and police force of ancient Rome. We do not have a wealth of information about these Vigilis, but there are enough mentions that we know approximately how they worked. Each cohort had a fire engine that was pulled by horses to the fire. The fire engine, or siphon in Latin, included a large double-action pump that would be partially submerged in reservoirs of water so the vigilies could then douse the flames with water pumped through the hoses. Additionally, they would use water-soaked quilts to attempt to smother fire, and evidence shows that they might have attempted chemical firefighting methods by using a chemical called acetum, which was a vinegar-based substance, to quell the flames. For some buildings, it would be impossible to put out in time, so they would instead focus on containing the fire by using hooks and levers to tear down buildings. The practice would continue to the 20th century and was the method used by the hook-and-ladder fire companies. The thought process was that a standing building would more easily spread fire, whereas a torn-down building was easier to douse with water. There were also Vigilis who were designated as Aquaria, as it was their job to know where the largest reserves of nearby water were. When a fire would break out, the Aquaria would rush to that water reserve and form what is generally referred to as a bucket brigade. The Bucket Brigade was a long line of individuals that stretched from the water reserve to the building that was on fire. Together they would pass buckets back and forth from the water where they would be filled to the fire where they would be dumped on the flames. The Bucket Brigade was among the most common methods of attempting to put out flames throughout almost all of human history. As I mentioned, we do not have written sources to state that Bucket Brigades were used prior to Crassus, but they probably were. Bucket brigades would remain as the dominant method of fighting fires all the way into the 20th century. It was one of the methods used to fight the Great Fire of Toronto in 1904, for instance, and I'm guessing you have probably personally witnessed someone dumping a bucket of water to put out a flame, although that flame might not have been out of control. The description provided of the Roman firefighters likely sounds quite familiar to our modern notions of a fire department. The common image presented in popular culture of firefighters typically is a group of individuals who work multiple days in a row responding to calls and alarms out of a centralized fire department. When an alarm is raised, those firefighters rush out in their fire engines, the big red trucks that is either the ladder truck or the pump truck that carries all the water. Instead of buckets and reservoirs, they have synthetic hoses and fire hydrants. So in some ways, it is just the technology that has changed although that better technology has allowed us to mostly discontinue the bucket brigades and the method of knocking down buildings to contain the flames. The formation of the unit have remained similar, and that increased technology has allowed us to fight fires in, say, skyscrapers, which is something that the ancients would have had no concept of how to do. The Vigilis appear to be the height of ancient or classical firefighting, at least in the Western world. I was able to find very little information on the firefighting techniques of the Eastern world, and I do plan to look specifically at the traditions in the United States and Europe, so I do apologize for the very Western-focused nature of today's episode. It does make sense that the city of Rome would see the height of firefighting in antiquity, and this is not some cheap shot at the so-called Dark or Middle Ages, but civilization was far different after the fall of the Western Roman Empire. For instance, it is estimated that in the year 133 BCE, the eternal city of Rome became the first city in the history of the world to reach 1 million inhabitants. A city that large is going to be susceptible to fire, and one with that much population density is going to be at risk of that fire spreading. It is no coincidence that approximately 40 years after reaching 1 million, Crassus had the bright idea to create a fire brigade. Alexandria was the second city to reach the million mark in 30 BCE, but after that, it was almost 1,000 years before another city hit 1 million. That city was Angkor in Cambodia in 900 CE, and then followed that up by Hangzhou in China in 1200 CE. Europe, on the other hand, did not see another city reach that height until London did it in 1810. As of 2016, we now have 512 such cities in the world. Roman Alexandria did not retain that million-person mark in the almost 2,000-year period it took for London to catch up to the two greatest Roman cities as both populations crashed during and after the fall of the Western Roman Empire. Many reasons existed for this population decay, such as plague and political instability, but the most fun to point out are the sacks of Rome by the Visigoths in 410, the Vandals in 455, and the Ostrogoths in 546. The population of the Eternal City is generally estimated all the way down to between thirty and 100,000 people by the mid-6th century, with a dip as far down to 15,000 by 1350. With the population crash, the city's professional fire department also vanished. Before we leave Rome behind, I would be remiss if I did not share the scandalized piece of information about those Vigili Zurbani. As I mentioned, they were founded in the year 60 by the Emperor Nero. The Great Fire of Rome occurred just four years later in 64 CE. This is the fire that famously pegged Nero as fiddling through the streets of Rome while the city burned. That story is of course false, but it also came with the charge that the Vigilis were instructed to help spread the fire rather than put it out so that Nero could build his giant palace. That would have been some excellent 4D chess found the world's first professional public firefighting service only to use them to burn down the very city that they are sworn to protect while banking on none of those hundreds of members of the Watchmen coming clean about their part in the crisis. Genius, really. I personally subscribe to the it-was-an-accident theory, but we don't really have time to get into that today. So let us stay vigilant and move forward. The following millennia did not see much in the way of innovation as great cities declined in size and more rural communities started to fill a country's population. This caused the need for an organized fire service to be less important, as those smaller communities could rely on the same type of amateurs we discussed earlier. Slowly, the communities resumed the more basic fire prevention strategies of old, primarily the Bucket Brigade. In this time, the manual pumps we discussed fell almost entirely out of use as did any concept of a professional fire service. The manual pump was actually one of the things that reappeared during the age of the Renaissance. Evidence seems to show that they first reappeared in the year 1518 in Augsburg, but did not really gain traction until the 1600s. It was the 16 and 1700s that finally saw innovation in the realm of firefighting. In the year 1673, the first practical fire hose was invented in Holland. Between, say, 500 and 1600 then, the most common firefighting tactics were amateur bucket brigades in the countryside, whereas in the larger cities like Paris, the king would usually have a professional system, somewhat like the vigilies that patrolled the streets both as police and firefighters. The city of London suffered great fires in 798, 982, 989, 1212, and 1666, But it was not until the final fire that they actually decided to start organizing a plan for a fire protection system. It was at this time that insurance companies started to appear. In an attempt to protect their clients' buildings and thus pay out less in claims, those insurance companies formed private fire brigades. Those insurance-related fire brigades, though, were a bit like the Crassus Fire Brigade because they only fought fires at the homes of their clients. The insurance companies actually designed metal plaques with the company's emblem to be placed on a building that used the service. It was called the fire insurance mark or the fire insurance plaque. Across the ocean in the British colonies that would one day become America, the progress was at first a little slower. Throughout the 1600s, the slowly growing cities and settlements primarily used amateurs called into action by alarms to fight fires. However, there were growing concerns around fire prevention. In 1631, the governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, John Winthrop, outlawed wooden chimneys and thatched roofs, and in 1648, the director general of New Netherland, Peter Stuyvesant, appointed four men to act as fire wardens in the city of New Amsterdam. The trouble with fire for Massachusetts did not stop with the laws as arson-related fires started to hit the city of Boston in the 1670s. Finally, the colony chose to purchase a state-of-the-art fire engine from England that would allow them to better fight those fires. The general court then appointed hired 12 men and a captain to operate the fire engine and keep it safe. The captain, a man named Thomas Atkins, reportedly became the first official firefighter in what would become the United States of America on January 27, 1678. Similar to how I mentioned that London did not get serious about their fire service until a large fire in 1666, it was a large fire that helped spark the Americas into action on fire safety. The most disastrous fire in Philadelphia's early history occurred in the year 1730. It started on a ship docked on the Delaware River before it spread to Fishbourne's Wharf. All of the stores and warehouses on the wharf burned and the fire spread so far that it crossed the street where it destroyed three more homes. The estimated damage was several thousand pounds and left the area somewhat devastated. There was a healthy dose of public outrage at the fact that so little was done to stop this damage. The damage was partially seen as unnecessary by the likes of Benjamin Franklin, as he reported in an article published in the Pennsylvania Gazette newspaper that there was no wind on the evening of the fire, which meant there was no environmental factor that led the fire to spreading so far to cause such damage. In this article, he shared his belief that a few good fire engines and some equipment would have been enough to contain the fire before it spread out of control. The Pennsylvania Gazette was one of Philadelphia's most popular newspapers at the time, and after it was purchased by Benjamin Franklin and his business partner Hugh Meredith on October 2nd, 1729, it quickly became one of the most popular and most successful newspapers in all of the colonies. If you are unaware of Benjamin Franklin, he was one of America's founding fathers. In Mike Duncan's Revolution series on the American Revolutions, he actually described Franklin as America's founding grandfather, as he was a generation older than most of the other main actors in the Revolution. In some ways, he was the first real American celebrity, as his reputation not only reached all the colonies, but back to Europe as well. His fame and influence are sometimes cited as a reason that France would eventually become involved in the Revolution, which of course was a deciding factor in the United States winning independence. In addition to his writing in the Gazette, Franklin was known as a genius inventor and innovator. He will actually be our main character for the remainder of our episode. Also, just a hint, if you are ever playing a trivia game and you are stumped on a question about an American inventor, just guess Benjamin Franklin. Seriously, the size of the list of the things that he invented is absolutely astounding. Franklin was born in 1706, and by the 1730s he had become a master of influence the public at large with his writing. Not only did he publish articles in the Pennsylvania Gazette, which is the place where he published the accounts of his famous electricity kite experiments, but he had also mastered the art of pamphlet writing. One of his more impactful was titled, Modest Inquiry into the Nature and Necessity of a Paper Currency. This pamphlet convinced the government of Pennsylvania that it was time to switch to paper currency and is often credited with one of the reasons why the United States adopted paper currency when they declared their independence. It was also a boon for Franklin as the government of Pennsylvania hired Franklin's firm to produce the bills which consequently added to Franklin's growing wealth. This is cited as one of the reasons why Franklin was eventually selected to appear on the $100 bill despite never being president. In short, when Franklin picked up the quill, it changed people's minds and drove them to action. After the Philadelphia fire, Franklin was determined to help make sure that his city did not see another devastating fire without being prepared to fight it. Starting on February 4, 1735, Franklin began publishing a series of articles aimed at outlining the needs of the city to have a competent fire protection strategy. His first article was published under the simple pen name of Old Citizen, and contained the sage advice, quote, that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Franklin felt the main thing that Philadelphia needed was better awareness of fire prevention methods, but also outlined how fire departments could help in both cure and prevention. The articles were a success in that they rallied supporters to his cause. Franklin's campaign for better fire safety also became a popular subject in his Junto Club, which was a club Franklin had founded in 1727 that included some of the intellectual elite of the era. This effort culminated with the decision to found Philadelphia's first fire brigade, known as the Union Fire Company. The company officially compiled and accepted the Articles of the Union Fire Company on December 7, 1736. The articles explicitly state that the company would have no more than 25 members at any time, and required each member to supply two leathern buckets and four bags each. This requirement shows that this volunteer brigade used the methods of the bucket brigade we previously discussed. The huge innovation that Franklin's Union Fire brought was not that they were a fire brigade, as the fire brigade used the same tactics that have been used forever, and its articles were very similar to the ones of the Boston Fire Departments we already discussed, Instead, the innovation was in the volunteer portion. The Boston firefighters were appointed and professional for the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and the same was true for the firefighters under Crassus and the Vigilies of the Roman Empire. The same was true for Paris, as the firefighters were appointed by the king, and this pattern remained the same in much of Europe. The volunteer aspect did not mean that Franklin's brigade were amateurs or did not have good equipment. The company met monthly to go over techniques and discuss best practices or to update the company on any outstanding business. The restriction on the number of people also made it so the company was small enough to hold each other accountable and small enough not to be overwhelmed by the number of fires. You see, this company, instead of protecting the whole community, only swore to protect each other and each other's properties. This inspired other men to create their own fire brigades so that their homes were safe as well. Soon, Philadelphia had many brigades throughout the city, each helping to protect their own. A partnership between Franklin's Union Fire and the Hand-in-Hand Fire Company also saw a fire engine purchase from England in 1743, which contributed to increasing the effectiveness of both companies. This experience also inspired Franklin to create the first property insurance company in the Americas. This company was called the Philadelphia Contribution Ship, for the insuring of houses from loss by fire. This insurance followed the same tact as the other insurance companies in Europe we discussed, in that they created metal plaques to signify which houses had insurance policies so that the insurance employees could help to put out the fire to increase the damage to insured homes. The Philadelphia Contributionship, initially organized in 1752, actually still exists in Philadelphia and still sells insurance. Many of the company's insurance plaques still adorn some of the older buildings in the city. If you ever visit the city of brotherly love, you should definitely keep an eye out for these plaques and be sure to tweet me a picture if you find one. The contribution ship was also active in civic improvement projects and helped to place mile markers between Philadelphia and Trenton, which meant that it was an overall positive influence on the city. The Union Fire Company, the contribution ship, and the other volunteer fire departments that were inspired by Franklin formed the main firefighting community in Philadelphia for over 100 years as Philadelphia did not create its own fire department until 1871. However, despite only having these insurance and volunteer firefighters, the city did not suffer another major fire after the war fire we already discussed, unlike the city of Charleston, which suffered one in 1740, and the city of Chicago, which suffered one in 1871. The trained volunteer fire department were a rather large innovation. While the common picture of the firefighter is the professional one that works three days in a row while sleeping at the firehouse, most communities are actually protected by volunteer firefighters. As mentioned, according to the National Fire Protection Association, in the United States, a full 69% of all firefighters are volunteers. The usual makeup of these volunteer fire departments is a full-time chief hired by the city, town, or county, depending on the area, and then the rest of the department is made up of volunteers who are trained in the proper tactics of firefighting. These volunteers are then equipped with pagers that alert the volunteers of fires and medical calls so that they leave whatever they are doing in order to report to the fire station before leaving in their fire trucks to report to the site. The idea of volunteers as the individuals who protect the community from fires has its roots with Benjamin Franklin and has developed into a remarkably efficient system while still remaining cost-effective for communities around the nation. Today's episode highlights some of the history of firefighting and hopefully answered why the service has developed into a volunteer-based system the way that it did. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Either way, be sure to subscribe to the show using your favorite podcast app, including ACAST, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, Podcast Republic, and wherever podcasts are streamed. If you would like to stay up to date on the show, you can find us on Facebook or Twitter at why is that pod. And if you would like to email, you can do so at why is at gmail.com. Finally, the website is why is that Thank you for tuning in today, and I look forward to speaking with you again in two weeks. Cheers.